this is something we've been wanting to do at our church a little more often, is to, to bring a guest in when we have the opportunity, and we have a wonderful opportunity. Our guest today, his name is Mark McGrath. Some of you hear that name and you immediately think rock band Sugar Ray, if you know that group, or the co-host of Extra. And I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I just know there's a Mark McGrath on both of those things. But Mark and his family, we're going to put a picture up here. You may have seen them. Um, they have visited our church a few times. I'll give you a few minutes to see if you can pick out which one is Mark. If you are visiting, please understand this is not how we treat our visitors normally. We don't have you come once or twice and then have you come up and preach. <laughs> so you can relax. Mark is a special case, and I'll tell you about Mark. I've gotten to know him and his family a little bit as he's visited. First thing they told us is they were brand new to the church and immediately felt welcome. They felt at home. They used that word. They just felt at home. They felt this was a great place to be. So first of all, thank you, all of you, for being that transparent in your love for God and your love for people that somebody would come in, a family would come in and not know anybody and immediately feel welcome. That's wonderful. Uh, I've learned a few things I'd like to share because this might help you. He's going to come up and speak to you. Sometimes it's nice to know a little background. So uh, Mark and Terry have been married for 27 years. They met in college at Cal Poly Pomona. Terry played volleyball. Mark played a little game called baseball. I explained to Mark that our church is rather fond of baseball players, especially in the pulpit. If you're visiting, our pastor, our senior pastor, was a baseball player. So, yeah, so that, that, that's, they have two wonderful daughters. I got to meet them last week. They, none here today, right? The first service you had your older daughter. Chelsea graduated last year from Biola University School of Business. She is now in her first year studying law at Pepperdine. That's a wow. It's okay to say wow. That's impressive. We've got a bigger wow at first service, but no, that's nice. Their other daughter, Joni, who's celebrating a birthday this week, is uh, a senior at Biola University studying accounting. I am a Biolan, so I love the Biola eagle blood that courses through the McGrath family. It goes deeper than just their two daughters attending that school. Mark got his MBA from Biola, and his wife, Terry, works for the registrar's office at Biola. So you've got to love a family that connected to Biola. Mark is a rather busy person. He is a sales manager for Newport Farms. That's a food distribution company in Corona. And he is simultaneously getting a master's from Talbot Theological Seminary. And in his spare time, he teaches and he preaches, and he just serves the Lord wherever God calls him to go. But other than that, he likes to lay around the house and watch NASCAR. We got to know Mark uh, a few times and then listened to his messages online. We could tell just even listening, he has a passion for the Word of God. And he teaches it with, with commitment to clarity and accuracy. We've gotten to hear him at two services You'll get to hear what I'm talking about in just a moment. Uh, we are delighted that he is here. Smile at him a few times while he preaches. Welcome, Mark McGrath. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll tell you, Pastor John might not be feeling well, but he is an emailing and texting machine. I am telling you, he blew up my phone all week this week, but I, I'm t it's crazy, right? 
um, I just feel so cared for and so loved by him, and I have still not even met him. And I just feel this kindred spirit with him. It's just crazy. And uh, even yesterday morning, I was at my little uh, favorite bagel shop, and my wife had shown up, and, and John had, uh, Pastor John sent me a, a text, and I just start tearing up. It was just so sweet. And I just felt so loved and so encouraged. And many of you, I know, have been praying for me as well. So thank you, and thanks, uh, thank you for welcoming me. I really appreciate it. Um, David, Pastor David, thank you so much. And the rest of the leadership team uh, here at The Rock, I'm always humbled uh, to be asked to preach at a church. It's very humbling. Um, but do you know what the real trick is? Being asked to come back. <laughs> right? But John assures me you guys are loving, caring people. So don't let him down. So here's what's interesting. Um, I, I, I preached for the first time probably 15 years ago. I preached at least 200 times. I get nervous every time. Is that okay? There's a healthy, healthy dose of nervousness that should come, you know, come along with taking the pulpit. This is serious business. So 15 years ago, I don't think they had the Bible app, right? I don't think, if I remember. So when I preach, I never have to worry about somebody being on their phone. But see, now I do. Right, so I look out and think, are they texting or are they on their Bible app, right? So have you guys ever wondered what's on this pulpit? There's TV monitors right here, and it shows me, really, it's crazy, everybody's seat, and I can see if you guys are texting or if you're, or if you're on your Bible app. Maybe not. Anyway. So here's the general rule of thumb if you're a guest preacher. The first, well, the general rule of thumb is to keep it simple and maybe even keep it short. Two reasons. First reason, if you like it, you go away wanting more. If you don't like it, we all get to go home early, and children's ministry workers think I'm brilliant just because of time management. As Pastor Dave mentioned, I was indeed a college athlete, and quite humbly, I thought I was a pretty good one until I met my wife. My wife excelled at three different sports in high school. She was a two-time All-American in volleyball, and then she played professionally in Italy for a year. This is where my true Christ-like humility started to take root, was meeting my wife as an athlete. I committed to, uh, my life to the Lord at the age of 15, and I was very serious about my faith and have been ever since. But while my wife and I were dating, we decided to play a pickup game of basketball, one-on-one. -on -one. All of this against all of her. And I thought... She doesn't have a chance. And she smoked me like 20 to 3. We were playing by one point each. I mean, I didn't have a chance. And she wasn't even playing basketball in college. She was playing volleyball. She was just that gifted of an athlete. So I thought it wiser at that moment to find my true identity in Christ and not my athleticism. Amen? So while that was a tough time, if it's okay with you, I just don't want to talk about that anymore. And now... Right? And now I get invited to preach here. Oh, and lo and behold, Pastor John is an athlete. Not just an athlete. I googled Pastor John because there are some rumors about his athleticism, right, which challenges my own insecurities. And sure enough, he was drafted by the Dodgers. I got a letter to try out for the Chicago Cubs, and I went, and that was the last thing I got from the Chicago Cubs. And sure enough, he's drafted by the Dodgers and the Lakers. Like, come on, really? And I think I even read somewhere in Wikipedia or something that he won an Olympic gold medal uh, in hockey, and I think he won the Masters tournament in golf or something like that, just for good measure. 
But I was bitter at this point, so I don't really remember what I read. And then I was dumb enough to click on some of his, like, testimonies and sermons. Like, are you kidding me? You guys are so fortunate. He is a gifted, gifted, gifted preacher. And I was so humble just to listen to him. And I'm like, going, I had already said yes to preach here before I listened to that. Like, what was I thinking? God's sense of humor. So apparently the Lord is still humbling me by filling in for Pastor John. And I'm very thankful. Side note. It's his birthday on Saturday, six days from today. Some of you might know that. Somebody told me to mention that, so I thought I would. Happy birthday, John. And it's a few days after my daughter, Joni, who will be 22. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for the loving smiles that I see in every seat. Lord, we thank you for Pastor John, for the testimony of his faithfulness to you and his faithfulness to your word. We pray that you would strengthen him and strengthen this church body to continue to do your work. In your name we pray. Amen. So, imagine, if you will, that you're told you only have a few days left to live. And you gather those people that are important to you in your life to tell them whatever it is that you want to tell them in your last days. You gather them into your home. What advice? We're going to do a little interaction here to the degree that you're comfortable. If I have to point, I'll point. What advice would you give somebody on your deathbed? What's that? Know the Lord. What else? Get ready to go home. You're ready to go home. What else? What would we say to those we love on our deathbed? Love you? Lots of things may or may not come to mind. When I pondered that question myself, I came up with three things. This is going to make me sound like, yeah, this guy's got it together. Then I'll be honest later. Mine were, this is what I'd say, I'd say to my kids and my wife, cling to God, treasure his word, and live below your means. When I actually pondered that question, the first one that came to my mind was, live below your means. That's how shallow I am. But it's so important, you know, we live in such a consumeristic society, you know, to live below our, to live below our means. But those are the three things that I would say, cling to God, treasure his word, and live below your means. Caesar Augustus, this is what he said on his deathbed. Caesar Augustus was the first ruler of the Roman Empire, and he led Rome for 41 years. And he would boast that he found Rome made in clay, and he left it made in marble. So smug was he over his success that on his deathbed he asked, Have I played the part well? Then applaud as I exit. Those were his last words. Sad, yeah? Karl Marx? Heard that name? The author of the Communist Manifesto. While on his deathbed, Marx's housekeeper went to his side, and she requested his last words so that she could record them for posterity, to which he scoffed at her, Go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. Pretty sad. Turn with me now, if you will, to Second Timothy chapter... Well, Second Timothy, we're going to focus on chapter 3, but we're going to give a quick overview of this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. 2 Timothy. I hear the pages. When that quiets down, we'll get rocking and rolling here. So 2 Timothy. We want to take a look at the setting of this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. And we're going to give ourselves a quick glimpse of Paul's current condition 
and Paul's immediate future. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says, To Timothy, and he calls him his beloved what? His beloved son. To Timothy, my beloved son. It's his son in the faith. It was somebody very, very dear to Paul. In verse 4 of chapter 1, he says, I long to see you. He longs to see his son in the faith. In verse 8, he says, Therefore, chapter 1, verse 8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. And go to chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Paul says to Timothy, as he's winding up this letter, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul, as we just revealed, is a prisoner in Rome. The Roman Empire persecution of Christians began in 64 A.D. under Emperor Nero. And this letter to Timothy took place just a few years later, about a year and a half, two years later, in 66 A.D. And Paul knows that his days are over. This is his last letter to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. Shortly after the writing of this letter, a few months later, Paul indeed was beheaded just west of Rome. Paul's an important figure to our faith, yes? And these are the last things that Paul has to say. These are the things that he wants Timothy to know. And so the purpose of this letter is to encourage and give instructions to to Timothy to carry on after his departure. These are important words. As you have probably figured out by now, 2 Timothy is Paul's swan song, his last will and testament, his passing of the torch to Timothy. So what he's mentioning in 2 Timothy is very, very important. Who is this Timothy to whom Paul writes? Timothy not only accompanied Paul on many of his missionary trips, but he was also sent on many crucial missions by Paul. Paul felt that he had no one else that had more compassion and more commitment to the faith and to the gospel than Timothy. If you want, you can flip to the left of Philippians chapter 2, just a few books over, Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. This is what Paul says to the church at Philippi. Chapter 2, verse 19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of of the gospel like a child serving his father. This is the relationship between Paul and Timothy. So close were Paul and Timothy throughout Scripture that both of their names are listed as authors on six of Paul's 13 letters in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians is one of them, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Philippians, I already mentioned that. And then Paul wrote the two letters to Timothy. So eight of Paul's 13 letters involve Timothy. 
So now that we have the setting of this letter established, let's turn to chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. I'm going to find out whose phone that is right here. I'm always nervous about that myself. My phone's here, so I have easy access to it. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read that. We're going to go through this pretty quickly. Paul says, but realize this, Timothy, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious, gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith, but they will no longer, or they will make no further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Jonas's and Jambres' folly was also. Now you followed my teaching, Paul says to Timothy. You followed my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, and my perseverance in persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And the crescendo verses of this chapter, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man and the woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good word. Amen? There's a lot there. Not enough time to go into it all. But we're going to focus on Paul's key message here. Paul's key theme for 2 Timothy, for this his last letter, his last will and testament, is to guard the gospel. He's telling Timothy to guard the gospel. There are multiple words throughout 2 Timothy for this term, gospel. Doctrine is one of them. Sound words is mentioned in 2 Timothy. Treasure, word of truth, knowledge of truth, sacred writings, and scripture. Doctrine, gospel. Doctrine or gospel, we're going to say doctrine moving forward, is found more in 1 and 2 Timothy than anywhere else in the New Testament. What Paul is writing in this letter very important to the church. It's very important to Paul. It's very important to Timothy. And it's very important to us to guard the gospel. And I'm thankful that Pastor John guards the gospel. I can hear it when I've heard him online. I can read it all over your, your the website. It's just so evident that the gospel is very important here. And I praise the Lord for that. 
what do we mean by doctrine? When I say doctrine, what does that mean to you? Anybody? What's that? Truth. What else? What does doctrine mean? Don't make me sit out there and answer myself. I'll do it. Teaching of Scripture. Rules for life. Those are good. That's good. Well done. I, I want to preface or, or, or posit this. This is what doctrine means. It's that, but it's more than that. Doctrine means right believing. We don't want to just learn doctrine just for a bunch of rules, right? Information. Doctrine means right believing and right behavior. They go together. Right believing and right behavior go together. That's what doctrine means. It has more to do with behavior, attitude, and conduct than it does with creeds or systems of belief. The religious rulers and leaders of Jesus' time had lots of doctrine. They were problematic, weren't they? Doctrine was not their issue. Behavior was their issue. God is not impressed with what we know. But He is surely pleased with what we do with what we know and how we live. Amen? John 1, 1 says this, In the beginning was what? Was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word was God. They went hand in hand. A few verses later in John 1 it says the Word became what? Flesh. The Word became flesh. That's doctrine. Christ is our truest example of doctrine. That the Word became flesh. That the belief and the behavior went hand in hand. You didn't have to worry if Christ you know, behaved by, you know, what He believed. He was what He believed. His flesh and His Word were the same thing. That's what doctrine needs to mean to us. And that's an enormous task for us as a church. So as Christians, if we claim that we desire to be Christ-like, this happens as the Word or as doctrine becomes flesh in our lives. Amen? Let's look at verses 1 through 9. We're going to hit a few things. In verse 1 it says, Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. In the last days, difficult times will come. And so Paul is writing this to Timothy, who's a pastor. This is a pastoral epistle. And so he's saying to Timothy... He's saying to Pastor John, in the last days. When are the last days? (laughs) Yeah, right? Is it now? How do we know? Is the Bible clear about when the last days are? I think so. Hebrews 1.1, you don't have to turn there. Hebrews 1.1 says this. It says that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, and in many portions and in many ways, In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. In the last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. Christ came 2,000 years ago. These are the last days. Now, whether they last another 10 years, 100 years, or 1,000 years, it doesn't matter. These are the last days. Compared to eternity, it's going to go by like that. We live in the last days. Why will difficult times come? Interesting, it's the pastoral letter. He's writing to Pastor Timothy. What's interesting, in verse 2 he says, For men will be lovers of self, right? We read through this. Lovers of self, lovers of money, 
boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Who's he talking about? Who is Paul talking about when he writes to Timothy? Who? I heard a couple things, but I didn't hear anyone clearly. He's talking to people in the church. Does that take you back a little bit? That's who the audience is for when he's talking to Timothy. Those are dangerous, ugly, nasty words. And the warning for Timothy is that these are people in the church. We like to think in the church that the world needs doctrine so they can behave like me. And Paul says, you sure? How are you behaving in the church? I'm just reading what Paul wrote to Timothy, all right? Don't hold, hold it against me. You get what I'm saying? It's kind of startling when you think about that. But that's who he has in mind when he's writing to Timothy, is some of the things that are taking place in the church. Well, why? Let's look at the very beginning of verse 2 and the very end of verse 4. For men will be lovers of self, end of verse 4, rather than lovers of what? Rather than lovers of God. We have a love problem. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, we became lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And so when we're lovers of self rather than lovers of God, doctrine has a difficult time having its way in our lives. And it's ugly. And what's interesting, if you look in verse 5, it says they, right, holding to a form of godliness. I've lived in moments where I've held to a form of godliness, but that's just a form. It wasn't godliness. It was a form of godliness. Although they have done what, does verse 5 say? To its power. Denied. It says, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Doctrine, we deny what doctrine wants to do and needs to do in our lives. And that's something we've got to wrestle with before God. And just say, what's getting in my way? What about my life? What about myself? Do I love more than you, Lord, that's causing me to deny your word? In times when I'm in those ugly places and people start quoting Scripture to me and whatever, it actually makes me angry sometimes. Like, I don't want to hear God's truth. I want to, you know, live in this place and, and love this place, even though it's ugly sometimes, instead of just trusting and believing and behaving according to God's doctrine. What does Jesus say about following Him? Scripture says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. That is so difficult, especially in a world that says it's all about you and it's all about me. How do we deny ourselves every day? How do we pick up that cross? Go to verse 10. When Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, now you, this is a positive thing now, you followed my teaching." When Christ went out and recruited his team, what did he say? Come, follow me. 
And so that's sometimes that's all we can do. We just follow. I have a theory, right? So this is just a little baseball side note. He recruited how many disciples? Twelve, right? So in baseball, there's nine positions, right? So you've got nine players. I think God has created a baseball team, but this is just my theory, right? Just kidding. And so you have nine players, and if you know anything about baseball, you have a right-handed reliever out of the bullpen, a left-handed reliever, and a pinch hitter. So I think, you know, that's 12. I don't know. But he said, follow me. And that's where we start sometimes. We show up and we go, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm learning doctrine, but I'm going to follow. And Paul says, he said, you followed my teaching. He followed Paul's teaching. And it's okay when a man of God's preaching for you to follow Pastor John's teaching. That's what's intended there. Because we know where that teaching came from, from Paul. It came from the Lord. And so we follow. And then in verse 14, if you go to verse 14, it says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned. Continue. So we follow a teaching. And then we just continue following. And then later in that verse in 14, it says, In the things you have learned and become convinced of. And then at some level, we become convinced of it. We see how that gospel starts penetrating the lives of people in our church family. We start seeing how the gospel penetrates our own lives, and we start becoming convinced of it. And that's a good thing. Where even through some of the challenges and pains and transitions of life, we say, I'm convinced. Some of us have parental issues, perhaps. I did, with my father. True of a lot of people, right? Parents divorced at a very early age. And I take, oftentimes, the relationship with my earthly father, and it impedes my progress with my heavenly father. That makes sense, right? That's not a surprise to anybody, right? And I was sharing with one of my classes, a cohort group of ours, a spiritual formation class, and um, the professor and some of my classmates asked me, um, is it difficult for you to trust God at times? And emotionally, I would say yes, but in my mind, because we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And my answer was, it's tough, but I do, because I know and I'm convinced in my mind, and sometimes that's enough, right? And we call it leading with the body. I lead with my body, I lead with my mind and say, Lord, I'm not feeling it, but I know. I know your gospel says, I know your doctrine says, therefore I will, regardless of how I feel. Does that make sense? And that's a difficult place to be in. But I don't feel like I have ever allowed that impediment that I have with my earthly father to get in the way of my relationship with my heavenly father, even though I feel like I'm hanging by a doctrinal thread. Does that make sense? Because I know. So I follow. I continue in that. And I've become convinced, and I continue to become convinced of the doctrine of God's word cool side note in verse 15 he says you learn these from your childhood if you look in the chapter one of second timothy he mentions two people that were very important to the transformation of timothy does anybody know who those two people are in chapter one they're ladies his mother and his grandmother isn't that precious here is a really a transitionary point in the history of the church and paul is passing the torch to timothy and in the formation of Timothy's spirituality and his discipline and his knowledge and his doctrine was Lois, his grandma, and Eunice's mother. Shout out to the ladies. Thank you so much. I heard the gospel from my mom 
for the first time. And I'm thankful for that. I saw her cling to God's Word. And I'm thankful for that. Verse 16, as we're building up, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. What Scripture is inspired by God? All Scripture. Do you believe it? I believe you do, because I do too. It is trustworthy. It is inerrant. And it is authoritative. And I find it inconceivable that a God worth worshiping like we did this morning is incapable, like a double negative, and I'll, I'll switch around so I'm not confused here. It's inconceivable to think that a God worth serving can't provide us with a gospel that's inerrant and authoritative. Does that make sense? If I'm going to serve God, I'm going to trust and believe that He's capable of providing an inerrant, trustworthy, and authoritative word. Amen? That's how powerful this thing is. A buddy of mine passes a church in Duarte, and he was in Uganda about a year ago, and he brought home pictures. I'm telling you, I bawled like a baby. And the pastors that were at this conference, 150, 200 Ugandan pastors, and they had portions of the Bible. That's all they had. Portions of the Bible. But they treasured that portion because they knew what it is that they held and how important doctrine was. So all Scripture is inspired by God. And it says it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Warren Wiersbe, uh, I have his commentary series. It was given to me as a gift 15 years ago, and I love Warren Wiersbe. He says about verse 16 that this is what Scripture does. This teaching, right? Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, four things. He says it this way. Scripture tells us what's right, what's not right, how to get it right, and how to keep it right. Does anybody like that? Yay, Warren Wiersbe. I love that. All Scripture tells us what's right. Can you imagine telling your kid that's right and that's wrong? And they do something wrong. That's wrong. Well, you know, they, maybe they're trying to do something better, trying to clean the room a certain way, and you just tell them that's wrong. Now, that's, this is what's right. This is what's not right. Here's how to get it right, and here's how to keep it clean. Right? That's a loving concern that God has in the doctrine that he's given us. He tells us what's right, what's not right, how to get it right, and how to keep it right. Thank you, Lord. Are we done there? Does this end at verse 16? No. There's a so that. Before I get to that, I just want to say one more thing about the authoritative Word of God. One of the interesting things, going back to Genesis 3, is what's the first words out of Satan's mouth to to Eve? Did God really say? The authority and the inerrancy of Scripture has been under tax since Genesis 3. Did God really say? Is that what it really means? Are you sure? Scary. Still true today. People are attacking God's Word all the time. Did God really say? Thank you. So he says it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and righteousness. And then verse 17, so that the man and the woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What that means is adequate and equipped is that we're in fit condition. We're fitted for use. Scripture fits us for use. Use for what? God's still at work. God's not done working and we just continue to revel in all the knowledge of doctrine. God's still working. I believe that some of us probably know some people that God's still working on. I meet with a guy every month that I've known for 20 years. We've been meeting for the last couple years. 
and I share the gospel with him every lunch. He thinks I'm a complete moron. I invited him to church, and I don't think he's here. Okay, just thought I'd make sure. If he is, I'm so excited. Um, and he just kind of scoffed. You know, it's great. And we've been, we've been doing this dance for like two years. And he initiates every time, when's our next lunch? When's our next lunch? And he just tells me how much he hates hearing about the gospel. It's just hilarious to me. I don't even get it. It's so cool. But I want to be fit for use. And that's what it means here, to be adequate, equipped for everything, that we're fitted for use. Doctrine doesn't start at right behavior and right believing. It equips us to be used by God. Doctrine equips every person in every chair to be equipped by God. Every single one of you and every single one of me, doctrine equips us. He's still working. God, what work do you have for me? I think it's Henry, is it Henry Blackaby uh, has a whole series on, or he has a saying that, you know, find out what God's doing and join him in his work. God's working. And he uses his doctrine to shape us and to equip us and to fit us for use as he sees fit. Christ is our ultimate example of one who's fitted for use. He's adequate, equipped for any work that the Father threw at him. And because of this, what Jesus did was and is revolutionary. Because his doctrine of what he believed and his behavior totally lined up. That word became flesh. And God used Jesus in a revolutionary way. And he invites you and me to join him in this revolutionary work. Paul wants Timothy to guard the gospel so that you and I and those that follow will change the world. And that seems like a big task, but somebody told me recently, do to one what you wish you can do to all. I wish I can save the world, but I'm going to start with Brent. Do to one what you, what you wish you can do to all. That's how we change the world. Just do to one what you wish you can do for all. Doctrine has the power to transform marriages, our relationships, friendships, neighborhoods, our places of work, and our places of worship. But we must deny ourselves and become lovers of God instead of lovers of ourselves. Amen? Thank you for receiving that. I'm going to conclude. I'm going to do a benediction with Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10. If you want to turn there, that's fine. And when I'm done, I'll pray. And then after we're, uh, I'm done praying, the prayer team will be up front if you desire to pray with anybody. All right? So if you want, turn to Colossians 1, just a little bit to your left, as a benediction, and then I'm going to pray. Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10. For this reason also... Since the day we heard of it, this is Paul writing to the church at Colossae. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, church, and to ask that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God Amen. Let me pray. Lord, what a privilege to be challenged by your word. 
But Lord, it is a challenge. Lord, we are lovers of self. It's our fleshly nature that we fight every day. Thank you, Lord, that you have provided a prescription called doctrine to fight that disease of lovers of self so that we can live righteously and become lovers of God and no longer have a form of godliness, Lord, but truly be vessels of honor for you so that we can turn to you and say, what work, Lord, do you have? I am fit for use. And he would, you would turn to us, Lord, and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you, Lord, that doctrine is being preached here and that it is received and welcomed by this body of believers. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much.